Well, I would say good morning to you. Good morning. And uh, it is uh, the Lord's Day. It's the first Lord's Day of a new month. And so we would plan to come to table today. If you haven't availed yourself to the elements already, you may do so at your discretion. There's a little table over there with the uh, prepackaged elements. And our assistant pastor has been leading us in worship thus far. Ben Inman will uh, come a bit later to administrate the uh, sacrament of the Lord's Supper as well. Well, we are continuing our summer sermon series through the book of Philippians, which we're going at a rather rapid rate, and I've entitled it Choose Joy, one of the main themes of the book, 15, 16 times in the book of Philippians, which is a prison epistle. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he penned it from prison. He was in jail for the faith. He was persecuted, and yet 15, 16 times he talks about joy in this short and very personal letter, and he commands people, believers, to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, and we'll see that we can choose to obey God in this only always by his power once again in Philippians chapter 2 today. Now, last week we addressed the, the beautiful and wonderful Christology, the theology of Jesus Christ in the first half of the chapter, uh, verses 1 through 11, uh, the Carmen Christi, this beautiful song or hymn or poem that Paul made sure was before the church at Philippi there, the church at Philippi being comprised of, of households, Lydia and her household, and the town sheriff, better known as the Philippian jailer, and his household, and ladies such as Euodia and Syntyche and Clement and the elders and the deacons, the overseers among them, all mentioned in this very personal book that Paul gives this charge to rejoice in the Lord over. And he urges, as we saw last week, for them to consider the example of Christ. So in that beautiful hymn about Jesus, we look at the theology of the Savior about his state of humiliation, his state of exaltation, of his giving up his, his glory above and to come and true, take a true body to himself, to, to live and to obey God perfectly, even unto death and that a cursed, wicked, public, humiliating death on the cross, that he might be our sin bearer. And then his exaltation is resurrection from the dead and because of this the father bestows upon him the name that is above every name the name of lord that at that the name of jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess and so as we come to the second portion of chapter two today let's not lose sight of the fact that a great deal of what paul had urged them in the first half of the chapter is that they consider the example of christ that they have this same attitude in themselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we pick up with that in mind. We'll complete the second half of the chapter right now, just verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, the the grass withers, the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. Uh, Let us believe the gospel and Holy Spirit come and empower us also to obey. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Work it out. Therefore, in light of what he just finished addressing, Jesus' example, Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' triumph in resurrection, work it out. Uh, There's a compound word employed in the original language here. You can deal with the preposition in a couple of different fashions. Work down. Work work through your salvation, but not work for it. Probably everybody who has gathered here today has a pretty good grasp on that. But he's not talking about work salvation. This is not like the old, 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 was it Smith Barney or, yeah, Smith Barney commercials. We, uh, we uh, make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. Well, that's not true with salvation. You cannot earn it. You cannot merit it of your own accord. You cannot improve your religiosity. You're not, you cannot increase the moral fiber of your own life in and through your own efforts and somehow make yourself acceptable to God. No, the grace of the gospel of Christ to us is that we must confess gladly ultimately, that we need a Savior, that we cannot save ourselves. If righteousness comes through the law, Paul writes elsewhere, then Christ died needlessly. If we can save ourselves, or even if it's a combination of, of faith and works, well, yeah, you know, you got to believe, and then also you got to promise to do this and that and the other and follow the commandments and keep the golden rule. If it's all kind of a hodgepodge together, What do we need Jesus for? Why did he die? No, we affirm that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and therefore God alone gets the glory because it is a work wrought solely by him. In fact, that's your bullet point under letter A, work it out. Salvation is monergistic. Moner, mono, one. One working. Salvation is monergistic. God makes us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2. It is God who justifies, Romans 8.33. So we do not work for our salvation. We do not work to obtain it, but instead we are living out that which we have received from God 
in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's monergistic. Only God is at work. And yet, in our passage, which is a little bit of a tongue twister sometimes, work out your salvation, God's at work, both the will and the work. What else is Paul saying here? He is saying that second bullet point, sanctification, is synergistic. Sanctification. Now, I could specify progressive sanctification. There's something about our positional sanctification. By this will you have been sanctified. 1 Corinthians 6, also in Hebrews. But the way I'm speaking to it today is in the commonly used sense, which is progressive sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, developing godly character, becoming conformed to the image of the son, the, the elder brother. Salvation is monergistic. Sanctification, in contrast, is synergistic, working together. In our salvation, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Ephesians 2 and other places as well. You were dead. You had nothing to bring to the party. Dead men tell no tales. You were dead, and God had to work of resurrection and make you alive together with Christ by sending his spirit rushing into your heart. He had to quicken you, to regenerate you. You had nothing to do with that. But now that you're alive in Christ, now that the Holy Spirit is resident within you, you can cooperate with God. You can indeed work together towards working out your salvation. And so the Bible teaches, I said this a couple of weeks ago, I'll save it again, say it again. The Bible clearly teaches both divine sovereignty. God is ultimately in charge, and human responsibility. We have real choices with real consequences that we are truly responsible for. This is a bit of a mystery to us. It's called an antinomy, where it seems contrary, and yet, and yet, it's not. The good doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, puts it this way. The contradiction is apparent and not real. It is resolved when you understand that this is one of the ways in which God works in us to call forth personal action from us. God, having made it possible for us to do anything at all, then calls upon us to do it. God, by working in us, makes us work. God, by initiating the movement, has decreed and ordered that the movement shall be continued, partly at any rate, by our effort and activity. Thus we discover that what may on the surface appear to be contra contradictory is not really so at all. There's no contradiction in the Bible in teaching divine sovereignty and human responsibility. There's no contradiction in Philippians 2 when he says, work out your salvation, not for it, never, but work it out because it's God who is at work in you. It was he who began the good work in you, right? Philippians 1.6, maybe the most famous verse from this little book. It's God, uh, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, he initiated it, not you, 
will perfect it, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He continues to be at work in you. It's not that you're just given a lump sum down payment of grace on the day of salvation and now you're left to your own devices. No. Paul decries that in the book of Galatians, which someone has termed Romans written mad. What does he say to them? Oh, you foolish Galatians. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? No, it's not just our own efforts. It's God making us alive. It's God co-resurrecting us with Christ, making us co-heirs with Christ, not only of future benefits, but of present realities, the Spirit. And He gives gifts among men. And we're now alive. But God, verse 13, is the one who is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But we're not to be completely passive in this process of progressive sanctification. You may have heard the old adage that had been floating around the church decades ago, let go and let God. And that's not what Paul is advocating here in Philippians 2, nor am I. Nor am I suggesting that it's just all human merit or your own efforts before salvation or afterwards. It's always by grace. And God is the primary mover. He is the first cause. But when we're alive in Him and He's at work with us for His good pleasure, God, God's work causes us to afterwards then cooperate with God's Spirit. And yes, we do exert work. In, in the many letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote, he talks about laboring. He talks about working, uh, about uh, competing uh, as a runner to get the prize. Uh, one of the words he uses is agonizo, uh, another one, athletos, agonizing, athlete. He, he's giving forth energy. He's working. In the faith, not seeking to please God, but because the pleasure of God rests upon him in Christ. When the Father's voice comes out of heaven more than once and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Brothers and sisters, you've been adopted into the family of God. And because of the merits of Christ, he is well pleased with you too. He loves you. And his pleasure rests upon you. And here in our letter, even though Paul is removed from Philippi, he's in Rome. He's in jail. He wants the sheriff and Lydia, who was in retail, or a merchant, he wants them all to press on in the faith with obedience to and reverence for God. Fear and trembling. Humility and worship. We spoke about both of those last week. The great uh, commentator Motier says, Salvation is a present possession whose riches we may and must explore and enjoy day after day. Enjoy. Choose joy 15, 16 times. What, what, what is the famous Westminster Catechism? Question and answer number one, where does the chief end, meaning purpose of man, 
to glorify God and what? To enjoy Him forever. And sometimes I think as Presbyterians, if you are one, we emphasize so much the first part, glorifying God, which we should never cease from, that we neglect the second part, which is to enjoy Him. He is a living God who, who has made you alive. And he's lo He loves you. He's adopted you. He wants a relationship with you. God is at work in you. He accomplishes our redemption by Christ's cross work. And He provides power to live godly in Christ Jesus by His Spirit. So in our circles, we believe in a couple of theological terms. We call them total de depravity and total inability. Total depravity, that the, the extent of the fall of mankind into sin is such that there is corruption that, that reaches to every part of our being, mind, will, intellect, emotions, our, our, our bodies. The extent of the fall is thorough in that regard. And so we are unable, total inability, we are unable to save ourselves. And yet, when we are quickened and regenerated, remember, salvation is monergistic. God is the actor. God is the only one working. But when that happens, our will is set free. There no longer is the bondage of the will. Our wills are set free, and we go from being... Uh, uh, not able not to sin, where sin is all we do, this is the theology of Augustine, to being transformed, to being changed, to being vivified, to being sanctified, where we are now able not to sin. And God has made us alive in Christ, and our will is set free. And some people misunderstand grace. They think, well, oh, oh, goodness, yeah, this is, this is awesome. You know, Jesus saved me, and now I am free from having to obey the commandments. Uh, ben is leading us through this in the Sunday school hour, which starts at 9.30 each week. No, it's not that you are saved from needing to obey the law. You are saved by God's grace so that you now can obey the law. You're not freed from the commandments. You're freed now in Christ to fulfill the commandments. That's why one of the later letters in the New Testament says, his commandments are not burdensome. So we do not shirk off the moral will of God. If we've been saved, if we're alive and God's spirit is striving within us, we now live lives of obedience and gratitude and we walk in newness of life. We put to death the deeds of the flesh, and we live more and more into righteousness. Letter B in your outline, this little light of mine. Some of you all know the children's song from Sunday school or vacation Bible school or what have you. This little light of mine, and I put uh, in bold verse 14, in, on the back of your sermon outline there. That'd be a good memory verse for chapter 2. If chapter 1's memory verse was Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, which is his return. I put it to you that 2.14, 
which I term the hardest verse to obey in the Bible, would be a good memory verse. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I term it the hardest verse to obey in all the Bible. I recently heard about the cowboy rule. Cowboy rule is guys are out around the campfire and old Cookie is back at the camp making the stew or what have you. When the guys come in from riding out on the range, if they complain about the, fo the food, the cowboy rule is invoked. You get to cook tomorrow. You don't like it? You're cooking tomorrow. We are called to be blameless, innocent, and without blemish. Verse 15, we are called to be blameless, innocent, and without blemish. We are called to be pure, in contrast to a crooked and twisted world. The problem is, left unto ourselves, we are not, right? There is ultimately only one who truly is blameless, innocent, and without spot or blemish, above reproach. And so we are saved only by the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1, 18. He alone is without blemish and without spot. But in this passage, we are called children of God. Again, this idea of adoption into God's family. In fact, J.I. Packer says, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name, it's, it's very personal, it's very familial, it's very relational. It's not just the legal forensic declaration on the part of God that we have the righteousness of Christ, that's the doctrine of justification, but adoption means we're family. And we are called to live differently than the world, a world which is crooked, I had a neighbor girl growing up, uh, and she wore what I imagine was probably a pretty uncomfortable back brace. It was made out of metal, presumably steel. I, I don't know exactly, but uh, it kept her kind of stiff. But why did she wear it? Because she had scoliosis, curvature of the spine. And that's the word, that, or the root word that's employed here in the Greek New Testament for crooked. Crooked, twisted, perverse, distorted. And so because we believe in total depravity that the effects of the fall are thorough and affect every part of our being, uh, the image of God within us is marred but not destroyed. It is, it is marred. And we live in the world. You and I are believers. We're... We're, we're not blameless, pure, and without blemish or spot on our own, but there is one who is. When he draws us to himself only by his grace and makes us alive together with Christ, now we are to live distinctively. We are to live differently. Think back to the Old Testament. Daniel and his three friends, they wouldn't bow the knee, right, under King Nebuchadnezzar. They lived lives that were peculiar or distinctive, marked out by being similar to the God that they serve. Well, what does it mean for us today to be lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation? I would say that it has to do with what 
theologians term the now and the not yet. Longtime PCA pastor Mark Bates, who was my family's pastor years ago, describes it this way, the now and the not yet nature of the kingdom and how we are to live in the world today. He says, while the American nation came into being on July 4th, 1776, our forefathers did not experience the total reality of being an independent nation until 1781 when General Cornwallis surrendered to Washington at Yorktown. Even though the, and even then, the war did not officially end until they signed the Treaty of Paris in 1783. So Jesus' coming, including his death on the cross and his resurrection, says Bates, was the beginning of the kingdom of God. Spiritually speaking, it is our 4th of July. However, the fighting continues. The final surrender of the world powers to him still remains until his second coming. It is as if we are living between 1776 and 1783. Christ has come, which means the kingdom of God has begun, but we are still awaiting his second coming. In this sense, we as Christians live between two worlds, between two kingdoms. We live in this present age, but because the grace of God has appeared, we live as citizens of the coming kingdom. Because these two kingdoms, this present age and the kingdom of God, have different values and different allegiances, we are constantly being pulled one way or another. We are torn between living for what Paul calls ungodliness and worldly passions on the one hand, and godliness and self-control on the other. That's what makes it so difficult. Bates concludes by saying, we live in this world, but we are called to live as citizens of another. And of course, by the time you get to Philippians chapter 3, and verse 20, it says that very thing. Our citizenship is in heaven. So number one, uh, under letter B, this little light of mine, we're called to be blameless, etc. Number two, there's no time to complain when you are busy letting your light shine before men. We would do well to review Jesus' words about that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 14 through 16, or the fact that he's the light of the world in John chapter 8, other places we could go as well. But no complaining, no grumbling, no disputing. Grumbling and murmuring, uh, plus the Greek word in, in, in English, murmuring, is an example of uh, onomatopoeia, that word that you studied in eighth grade English or whatever it was where the, the word connotes something. That's true also in the original language when it connotes sort of the, the cooing of doves, not in a soothing fashion, but in sort of a always ruffled, always never quite at rest fashion. Um, one of the brothers in Sunday school this morning mentioned that the sand was hardly in the sandals of those uh, followers of the Lord, the people of Israel, out on the Exodus before they began to murmur against their divinely appointed leader, Moses. Perhaps the people in Philippi were doing the same. We know that Euodia and Syntyche were having relationship issues. Maybe there was more of that. Regardless, Paul says, don't complain. 
the key here is to hold fast the word of life. So in terms of complaining, I mean, try to, I challenge you, try to go one day, try to go the rest of today without complaining about your food, about the temperature, about what your spouse is doing, what your kid's doing, what the pastor wore or didn't wore, uh, where, about the fireworks being too loud or not available enough. Try to go the rest of one day without complaint. The key is instead to hold fast the word of life, and probably we should expand on this point more than I will now. Holding fast the word of life means to retain it, to give heed to it, to listen and obey. What does the psalmist say in a psalm that's all about God's word? Psalm 119, thy word have I hidden in my heart so that I can show off my knowledge to all others. Is that what it says? Thy word have I hidden in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against thee. We've got to be in the word. And this harkens back to the synergism. Now that you're quickened, now that you're regenerated, now that you're born again, now that God's Holy Spirit resides in you and God has never stopped doing His work, but your will has been freed up now to obey and to choose in the power of the Spirit, only by grace, to obey God. I'm not going to show up at your house tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock and open the Bible for you. Are you going to be in the Word? Are you going to hide it in your heart? Are you going to study it? You're here today, sitting under the preaching of the Word of God. Will you observe that in your family? Will, will you observe that in your private devotions? Will you study the Word, value it, pr prize it, treasure it? Will you memorize it? Will you apply it? Will you live it? Will you obey it? Hold fast the Word of life in a culture that doesn't value what you value. That's the key. A quick side note before we press on to the last portion of the chapter. Quick side note, verses 16 through 18 about Paul's perspective. It might sound funny to your ear at first blush when he says, uh, you know, I don't want to run or labor in vain. Let me just assure you, he's not worried about losing his own salvation. He just wants his ministry to count. He wants to bear fruit for all eternity. He wants those to whom he is ministering to continue in the faith to continue in the things that he has learned so that even if he is poured out, even if he goes ultimately to the point of martyrdom, which he eventually did, that uh, his endeavors were still fruitful and useful for the sake of the kingdom of God. And then he talks about rejoicing four times, being glad together as mutual participants in God's grace as we each have received it from the Lord. Joy amid sacrifice and service. Lloyd-Jones says this as well about joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. Remember Paul writing from jail. He says, now the Christian gospel does not promise that if we believe, it will suddenly be taken into, uh, we will suddenly be taken into a magical world where there will be no one to upset us. It rather tells us that we may be surrounded by difficult people. There may be criticism. There may be jealousy. Yet, 
This is the point. This joy of the Lord is something that can survive even that. And he goes on to give two examples. He's already invoked the example of Christ in the first portion of the chapter, and now he speaks about a couple of his co-laborers. In fact, if you're in the Pew Bible, the editors of the ESV have said this passage are about Timothy and Epaphroditus. So let me read 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may be cheered by news of you, For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it goes with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Two examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul is hoping for his release. Remember earlier in the book he talks about his confidence that through the work of the Spirit and the prayers of God's people that this will result in his deliverance either sooner or later, and he's very hopeful on the sooner end. He's hoping for release and to come visit these people in Macedonia that he knew and has known for 10, 12 years now. He wants to go visit them again. And now he describes a couple of his associates, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy who will genuinely be concerned for others. That's what we saw last week. If there's any encouragement in, this, uh, in Christ, have this attitude in yourselves. What attitude? Consider the needs of others as more important than yourself. He said, Timothy does this. Back when I was a bachelor, and I was a bachelor through my 20s, I used to pray for the women that I was dating. I used to pray that God would help me not to just focus on you know, whether they laughed at my jokes or how they were responding to me or whatever, but that I would genuinely be concerned for their welfare, their well-being. And that's the kind of person that I would be. And I got that from this verse because of the example of Timothy. A kindred spirit, like-minded, similar values and motivations to Paul. Paul calls him his son, right? He's a son in the faith my true son in a common faith. He's not genetically uh, uh, related to him. He's not his father by birth, biology. But in the gospel, there is proven worth. This fellow is a man of character. And he looks out for others. Last week we talked about being Christ-centered frees you up to become others-centered. 
to not become so focused on yourself, not so self-absorbed. One commentator calls Timothy an exceptional ally in times of trouble. And look at all the descriptors that Paul piles on when he talks about Epaphroditus. They're, they're, they're numerous. His brother in Christ, his fellow worker, co-laborer or colleague in the gospel, his fellow soldier. It's, it's warfare, spiritual warfare. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Messenger. Sometimes used of an apostle uh, in the highest sense, but in this sense, as an envoy, a delegate, you know, he was shuttling, uh, Epaphroditus was, messages and money back and forth from these relatively poor Philippians back to Paul in Rome as they helped to meet his needs, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He was a messenger. He was a minister. It's related to our word liturgy, liturgent. All these things that he is described as being because, he, so he's a messenger. He's shuttling back and forth between uh, Macedonia and Rome. And he had become very sick, but God spared him. And Paul also. He's also described here as being a risk taker. Uh, risk taker. He exposed himself to danger. And uh, I used to have a joke within my family. I don't know if you'll laugh at my jokes either, but uh, I, I traveled a lot when I was in campus ministry, and I would go home to Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, my mother and her the family home where I grew up and uh, my various travels around the country to Colorado and Los Angeles and wherever else, Florida. And, uh, of course, she'd say what everybody says when your loved one, you know, you pray for their journey mercies, travel mercies. And what do you say to them? Travel safe. And there you've been guilty of bad grammar. You should say travel safely. You know, be safe, travel safely. Travel safe. And I would say, take needless chances. That was my joke in return. Nobody says that. Take needless chances. Uh, you don't do that. And so these guys weren't adrenaline junkies. These guys weren't thrill seekers. They were servants of the Lord, dedicated and devoted to sharing the word of life all around the then known world. And it does involve taking some calculated risks. And Epaphroditus did this. So did Paul. We, we, we know some of his biography, surviving shipwrecks and beatings and stoning and more. And that's how these fellows are described. One commentator says, the joy that Paul experiences when the gospel makes progress is not a glib happiness that overlooks pain and suffering, but a mature understanding of God's ability to make his pro uh, purposes prosper, even amid human pain. Paul's in jail, not denial. He's not in denial, and yet he rejoices in the Lord and urges, dare I say, commands that his readers and we do likewise. Let's have joy in the Lord. It's mentioned two times more there, verses 28 and 9. Joy. Not a bad little acrostic. Jesus, others, 
yourself in that order. J-O-Y, Jesus, others, and yourself. Let's pray. Lord, let us rejoice in you. Let us rejoice and be glad that this is the, the, the day that you have made. Let us rejoice in the gospel of grace of a Savior who has come and lived and died and risen, that we might be set free. Not to ignore your moral will, but to recognize that he completed it, and now we can follow at least to some degree in his steps. Let us be willing to follow his example, not only in the power of his resurrection, but also in the fellowship of his sufferings. We ask you to help us to do this as adopted sons and daughters of yours, of, of God most high, that we would love one another along the way. Lord, by your spirit, only by your grace, would you help us not to complain so much? Pray that for myself too, in Jesus' name.